Welcome to the Human Performance Podcast. Here we talk about everything to do with human performance and how leaders and organizations can get the best out of themselves and their people. I'm your host, Alex Young. I'm joined on the podcast this week by Danny Ryan, who's a consultant at Russell Reynolds Associates. Danny's a member of the firm's global healthcare sector based in London, working at the intersection of healthcare and education and technology. Danny's got an amazing background, having worked in the NHS as a trauma and orthopaedic surgeon, and has a specialist interest in medical education, being a member of Royal College of Surgeons, the Academy of Medical Educators, and is an Associate Founding Fellow at the Faculty of Medical Leadership and Management. Prior to this, Danny trained at the University of Cambridge, where he was a member of the GB Olympic fencing team. We cover everything from performance and sport through what he learned in education and training throughout his time in the NHS, and then finish up by talking about hiring practices, leadership, and what drives high-performance organisations. Hi, Danny. How are you doing? Hi, Alex. Yes, good, thanks. Good, thanks for uh, inviting me along. No worries at all. So great to, uh, great to catch up. Um, I thought we'd just kick things off by um, you just introducing yourself to the listeners and telling everyone a little bit about your amazing background. Perfect. So uh, I'm not sure I call it amazing. And I would definitely say that this is my first time on a podcast. So I should probably get that out in the air early <laughs> on. So if we're talking about feats of human performance, me making it through is going to be be one of them. But uh, no, so so I guess, you know, starting beginning, I grew up up north in, in Newcastle, um, went to a, a school where sport was very important. So, you know, that was probably what first made me start to think about performance um always did a lot of team sports you know it was a rugby school so that really got me started um i would say I'm, it was pretty average but you know, had the opportunity to also do an individual sport there fencing which stayed with me a lot longer um you know had the opportunity to fence on a few age group teams at, at gb level uh, as well as in the, the various sort of national championships and things um above age group too so you know finished up school and and as I was going through wondering what I wanted to do, you know, one of my big heroes was my grandfather. He was a clinician, so he was an anaesthetist, and he worked up in the Northwest where Charnley, the father of the hip replacement, lived. He worked with him quite closely. There was a lot of innovation at that time around the technology, um, a lot of great things, uh, also a lot of disasters that they had. You know, and I sort of grew up with some of these stories and figured, you know, well, that sounds like fun being a doctor so I'll go to medical school um attended Cambridge did all six years there which was absolutely fantastic you know got to work in an environment which was set up for success you were given a college system where you know your meals were ready you had rooms you didn't need to go and search for accommodation everything was really geared around you know the intellectualism and and being able to achieve and, and perform at your best. I continued with the fencing there on a, on a very successful university team where most of us were on the GB squad at the time. Uh, one of those went off to, to the Olympics. We had a couple of Commonwealth champions out of it. So quite a high performing team. And, and at the time, our vast rivals, Oxford, were pretty similar in terms of their makeup. Um, so, you know, we had some great battles for them over the years, the various other universities. Um, you know, we also won the British team championships in 2007, uh, a few of us, as well as the, the university championships a few times. So, you know, that was, uh, again, you know, big, big thread running through. And then sort of finishing up in 2009, went into the NHS, which was a very different experience in terms of support and, and you know, how, how performance is looked at. Um, went on to orthopedic registrar training, which I should say is how Alex and I know each other. We work in the Southwest together for a period before we went our separate ways. And all through that time, there were a couple of areas that fascinated me, particularly around diversity in surgery. Uh, you know, at the time, only 4% of consultants in orthopedics were female. Uh, that was something that, that I really noticed having come from other areas in, in medicine where we see you know, two thirds plus sometimes um, you know, of, of uh, the workforce is, is female. Um, one of the other areas was was leadership, and ultimately, I, I went off to do one of the, the NHS clinical leadership fellowships through the Faculty of Medical Leadership and Management, uh, which was led by Bruce Keogh. Uh, they used to be known as the Keogh Fellowships, and probably started off as ten or eleven of them, I think, and grew over the years. And and when I was there, there was uh, in the mid twenties, and, and I think they've even developed more since then. Um, 
but but had sort of several leadership roles in in different organisations through the British Orthopaedic Trainees Association, uh, the Federation of Orthopaedic Residents in Europe as well, where you know we had a really dynamic group uh, who built up a network probably of a couple of thousand residents across Europe. And it was one of those things where, you know, you think that the, the training standards are the same in every country, but actually, as you start to look deeper into it and, and deeper into the ways that, that people are trained and measured, you realize that there's a huge variation in consistency. You know, you think we're one European Union or, or were, I should say, post-Brexit, one European Union. But, you know, there are some countries there that have a completely different standard to, to the UK. Um, and yet we think it's transferable. So one of the things we did was to drive education standards there and we worked with some of the bodies like WEMS and our parent organization, EFORT, which was the, the sort of senior orthopedic um, uh, society. So, you know, trying to make advancements around how we look at performance. And there were a couple of people I was very lucky to work with as well during that period who were based here in the UK, one of whom was Lisa Hadfield-Law, who's an educationist at the, working with the British Orthopaedic Association and, and Royal College of Surgeons. And the other one was uh, Thomas Rolkar, who had written a number of books on, on sort of cognitive psychology and performance in surgery. And, you know, having worked with sports psychologists in the past, it was an area that kind of fascinated me of how do we create consistency in performance and results in surgery. Um, an easy question to ask yourself, I think. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, we're very close with them in a number of areas as well. And, and uh, you know, as I say, ultimately went through the leadership fellowship with Bruce Keogh, uh, worked at a non-profit startup healthcare consultancy called Kaleidoscope, which run by a brilliant brain, Richard Torn, who had worked at the Health Foundation and in government and brought a particular take and, and you know, new outlook on on healthcare and purpose. Um, and I suppose purpose is kind of the thread that's been through the last few years of my career where um, after helping grow Kaleidoscope for a year or so, made the move to, to Russell Reynolds, where I lead our biopharma practice here in the UK. So working with everybody from early stage biotechs right through to big pharma and, and with the investment professionals around the venture capital market as well. And of course, I do some work in, in services and private equity back companies too, but my main focus is, is biopharma and you know, very much you know, a purpose-driven organization at Russ Reynolds where we will really look at our clients and their metrics and how we help impact those through improving the way that their organizations are led. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there. That's been quite a long introduction, Alex. So I hope that was useful. No, it's great. And and I think, um, I mean, there's lots lots for us really to touch on and discuss. And before we kind of come to Russell Reynolds or talk about surgical training, which obviously we can both talk about for hours and hours, but we're not going to. Um, I, w- when I first met you, one of the, the really interesting things and, and one of the things we sort of connected on was obviously your sports background, because like me, you're very, very sporty. Um, fencing for me, when you're explaining about this was, it, it's Obviously, it's an Olympic sport, but it's fair to say it's somewhat niche. Um, could, could you talk a little bit about why you, you chose to pursue that and what it taught you and what it taught you about both team-based performance um, and kind of, you know, moulded your future career? Yeah, so I guess to go right back to the beginning, there was, you know, there, there's not many places where you can fence is there Let, let's face you right it's not like a football pitch they're not in every corner and I was very fortunate that I went to a school that, that did it so I had the opportunity um, and also had uh, you know a role model so so one of our family friends was on the on the cadet GB squad at the time and I very much looked up to him and, and saw what he was doing and then heard the kind of places that he was going and thought yeah you know that sounds like fun uh, so gave it a shot. That was, you know, it was the achievement that really got me into it. Thinking, you know, that that looks like it's a a, a great plan traveling the world and doing all these bits and pieces. I mean, the reality is is quite different once you get into a sweaty sports hall with with a hundred other men. But um, although you do get a sword as well, that's <laughs> you do get a, yeah, you get more than one sword actually, which is which is helpful. But we. Yeah, so so what did it teach me? I suppose as I say my my sporting career really started with rugby, and that was a team sport where everybody had their own role. So you know it was very rare that you would, as a second row, which is where I spent most of my time, you know, kick ball or um, be expected to take you know take the last kick of goal that might win the game. You know, I was there for jumping, making big hits, and and scrummaging. That that was it. And you know, you learn to be 
part of something that was bigger. I think that that for me was was one of the parts. Um, and I knew what my job was and, and how to execute it. I suppose the the thing that really hooked me on fencing was just the huge variety. You know, you are on your own. There's so many different variations of actions that can take place um, intellectually. You know, there's there's I found more of a challenge in it. I think, and and it's funny when you look back at the level of maturity that you have and the, the kind of analysis that you do. And I remember somebody saying to me, you should keep a, a book of fights and what happened and what went wrong and what you would change and and how you do it. And being about 15 at the time, I thought, God, that sounds really boring. Why on earth would I do that? I just want to get out and fight and win. Um, and actually, I wish that I had the patience to do it because, you know, I look back now and, and that that was one of the big lessons I learned was about preparation, not just for that fight in that moment, but actually the days leading up before and, and, you know, how you then warm down after and, and how you build up the next battle. And if you think about Olympics, these things work in cycles. And, and this is, this is one of the fascinating things for me, I think as, as, you know, we, we look into future careers as well Is you know, you, you work in these cycles in sport where you have a competition every couple of weeks. So it's about getting your training right for that. Uh, you know, are you physically prepared? Are you overtrained before the competition? Are you undertrained? Are you tired? You know, what, what are the factors that you, you, know, you kind of learn to control around that? And that's years and years of experience. And I still don't think I ever really had that right. You know, there's a lot more science in sport now. And as I see people coming through, it's a lot less amateur and, and more evidence-based and that we didn't really have that, you know, at the time. Um, but but then when you compare that to a working life, I mean, we've both worked in, in surgery where you were operating maybe three or four days a week and you had to be at your apt, absolute optimum all the time, you know. So how can you kind of bring those two experiences together? I suppose the the way that I look at it is that the fluctuations and, and the ups and downs are probably lower on a day-to-day basis, but they're still fundamentally the same. So it's making sure that you go to bed at the right time, making sure that you eat the right food, making sure that you have the right environment for sleeping, you know, all of these things. I suppose, again, what that brings me around to is one of the big lessons that I learned around rest. So I had a sports psychologist that I worked with. He used to work with the English cricket team um, at, at a junior level, but he always said that you have to have a day a week where you don't think about whatever it is that you're doing most of the time, whether it's training or work, whatever it is, you need that mental reset. And, you know, that is something that I've really brought through with me. And and again, it's about what are those little things that you do in your day to day that help you to find that balance so that you can make, you know, manage those little ups and downs in the day versus the the kind of the big cycle that we see in sport where it's it's about really preparing for that. You know, how do you make sure you're right for that surgery list on that day? or, you know, that meeting, you know, coming up in the future. Um, so, you know, that, that was something, the mental preparation, the physical preparation. Um, well, I, th- I think, you know, it's, it's really interesting because when you, even just when you were talking about when you were 15 and noting stuff down in a, in a notebook, that's very similar to what we were taught when you're operating, say reflecting on each operation. And equally, um, if I'm working with any, any teams or organizations or anyone internally at Verti, one of the big things is about reflective practice and, and you know, continuous improvement and actually documenting things down. Um, I suppose, I mean, one of the really interesting things with fencing is, as you say, it is, it's very intellectual as well as being a physical sport. Can you just speak to a little bit about the, the, the underlying rules and the goals and, and how that sort of plays into how you train and how you perform? Mm-hmm. So it, it's really quite simple. I mean, if you ever watch fencing, it looks like, the most complicated thing you'll see but it's fundamentally about hitting the other person before they hit you and having right of way and priority and there's various ways of doing that whether you hit someone else's blade out of the way or they attack you and miss and then you hit them it's all about how do you how do you develop that priority and i suppose in terms of the training you know my coach was was from hungary he coached a very successful team to to olympic medals and he had a system he had his processes and, and there was a cycle that you could work through so that even if you weren't physically training at the time, you could still, and, and, and this comes, you know, one of the things you talked about reflective practice, but this comes down to deliberate practice, you know, actually setting the time aside to 
think about something in a constructive way. I think it's Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell's book talks about 10,000 hours of practice, but 10,000 hours of practice is pointless if you just go, you know, if it's golf, you just go and hit a ball. You're not learning anything. You know, you're, you're not learning what adjustments you need to make. So deliberate practice is more a concept of going out with a purpose to be able to really achieve the result that you want. Um, and, and reflective practice comes into this as the next step to complete that cycle. But, you know, that was one of the things in, in fencing that we could do was, was the physical preparation and, and that deliberate practice around the muscle memory, but also then the tactical memory as well and the strategic piece too. Yeah, super interesting. And and for um, I mean, for preparation for sort of some of the bigger competitions, where certainly I guess at GB level or, or you know I guess any time, how much pressure was was that on you to to perform in those environments, and and how did you kind of handle that? So one of the beauties of fencing is that there's not a lot of money at stake. <laughs> I mean, you spend money, but you know the prize money is not there. You're not being driven i suppose you know this this again comes back to purpose doesn't it in terms of pressure and, and why you're doing it and and for me a lot of it was social and a lot of it was the enjoyment of, of um being with other people with my friends and and sometimes the the result was was secondary which which isn't right but you know in terms of the bigger competitions there was and look, I, I think you know the perfect example is the varsity match every year you know if you think about a season there's multiple points where you can pick up wins pick up your points for, for your ranking and if you maybe don't quite get the result that you want well yeah, that's okay because maybe next time you get a better result and you just push harder and, and do that preparation where the varsity match was about a one-off piece and the psychology of it was very interesting because i watched a lot of extremely good fences crack under that pressure you know it was a one-off you only really, you know if you're lucky you got three shots at it if you're injured you might get less if you weren't selected you might get less but the whole pinnacle of the year came down to that. So actually your training cycle became sort of slightly different to how you've done it all your life where, you know, it was, it was different from a regular season. So, you know, as, as you got up to that, we were doing, I mean, I remember when I was captain, we were particularly challenged that year because we'd lost a lot of good people. Oxford were particularly stronger and going into it, we'd lost to Oxford twice. So actually it ended up being that, you know, the preparation we did, we went away as, you know, on a training camp to Hungary. We spent a lot of time together as a team. We talked about tactics a lot. Um, I tried to, I don't know how successful it was, but tried to learn the different levers to pull on the members of the team to get the most out of them on the day. And, and ultimately, I'd say, I don't know that necessarily I did that that well, but we managed to win the, the match by by one point. The score was 111, 110. So a very, very fine margin, having walked away with it a couple of years before. And, you know, that was all about how do you prepare for this this cycle? Um, you know, and how do you really kind of, I suppose, you know, there was enough inspiration, but how did you motivate people to believe that we could win having already lost two matches? And the funny thing was, as as we came, as I came out of my first three years, which were hugely successful, and we were pretty much undefeated in my first two years, and then we had my captaincy where we lost the British Universities for the first time in six seven years, won the varsity match. And came off the back of that into a new team where there was some turnover of people leaving at the, the kind of natural end of their university careers. Um, and we got a very strong team in. And my role changed. You know, I'd been the senior statesman uh, on it. And, and we had these kind of young guys coming through who, when I was on the end of 20s, they were like 14, 15, and they were probably getting better results than me abroad, you know. Um, so there was a learning that I had to do around what my role on the team was. So you know, there was, there was my personal performance. And when you were the captain, you always felt that that was, you know, under the most pressure, but actually then the pressure changed. It was about helping other people perform at their best because, you know, when you're young, you think the best person on the team is the leader. They're not, it's, it's, you know, that's not how life works. And, you know, it was a real eye-opener for me a couple of times when I saw that it didn't really matter what I did, you know, my score would fluctuate a bit, but actually it was much more about getting people to perform at the top of their game because that was ultimately going to give us a better result than me trying to perform at my best. You know, so if I could spend 20% of my energy making two other people perform better, then that was much more worth the while and the hit on my personal feeling about how I'd done or, or how people viewed me. 
Yeah, I mean, super interesting. It's so many parallels to uh, to, to business and and healthcare as well. And um, I guess kind of you know fast forwarding things to to when we um, first got to know each other and, and met in um, uh, healthcare capacity was um, during our surgical training in the NHS. Now, you a little bit like me, obviously have a passion for education, training, and a bunch of other stuff. Um, one of the things you mentioned earlier was um, specifically in healthcare about diversity and teams. And I guess just, you know, continuing on for that conversation um, around fencing and how you need to basically make sure that the whole team is working together and is, is leveled up as much as possible. Can, can you speak to uh, what you saw when you kind of came into trauma orthopedics and, and, and why, you know, get it bit, having a diverse team, and a diverse workforce was, was a real passion for you? Mm-hmm. No, so I think there's a couple of things, first of all, which is that the, I suppose, you know, when you, when you look at teams in the NHS, it's a very different kind of environment. You know, it is teams that are put together on the day, you know, there's rotors, there's different skill sets. And I, I mean, think back, how many times did you work on the same team in theatre right. know, during your career? Yeah, barely ever. Um, so, so there's a slight difference in terms of how those teams work and how they need to be motivated. But, you know, look, I think there's, there's good evidence out there that if you change one person in the room, so if you have a, a kind of uniform, um, makeup in the room and you change one of those people out and bring in a diverse, um, diverse outlook that it will change the entire conversation, you know? So and that's incredible, isn't it? I mean, they've done this at the kind of board level, um, and and you can't believe that that it makes that much impact, but it does. And, and you know, I've seen it. I think there was a lot of behaviours that went unpunished in certain aspects of of the NHS where they were male dominated. And and honestly, if you put a woman in the room, I think there were a lot of things that were were changed. People wouldn't behave the way that they would, and it created a much better environment. That was my observation. Um, and you know we're not just talking about gender diversity here, but but you know um, ethnicity, um, you know sexuality, whatever it is. And you know th- this is something that we work on on Russell Reynolds a lot is, is the diversity and inclusion piece, helping organisations look at how you know where they are on their journey around this, and and how can they get to the next step. And you know. F- as I say, you know, this is all very observational from earlier in my career in surgery, and I'm sure you probably noticed it as well at various times, but we had a couple of really excellent registrars on, on the rotation who were women. And I remember one day there was, I think we were we were late, I was with my consultant, one of those registrars with her consultant, and and we went into changing rooms, obviously three guys. Uh, we were in there probably about 20 minutes laughing and joking and, and chatting and came out and I remember her face standing outside, obviously having waited for a while for the three of us, and then seeing that there was that kind of bonding going on in in the change room. You, know, you think about the impact that that has has on a person. You think about career progression. You think about flexible working. You, you know, it. I don't think we're good enough yet, at, particularly in in surgery, at bringing people along. I, do, I think the inclusivity piece isn't there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, really, really interesting. And I, th- I think, you know, the, the stats you alluded to at the beginning of, of the conversation were the, you know, certainly if, if, you, if you roll back the clock five, 10 years, even more so than now, uh, across the surgical special, specialties in particular in, in medicine, uh, there is a, a, a real lack of, of females um, who, who are, who, you know, are practicing in the specialty. It is, is a very male dominated specialty. Um, what were, what were some of the things, I guess, on the training side and the education side that you were, um, you were really kind of focused on? Because I know that, you know, your background, very similar to mine was, was a a lot of it was about powering up the trainees and and trying to get people to be as good as they possibly could be. Um, both, you know, with elements of technology, but also just with, with elements of, of better training and better access to training. Um, and obviously you, um, you've got a background in, in some of the, uh, the medical education practices and, and academies and things like that, as well as working for the British Orthopaedic Trainees Association. Um, so it'd be great to just get your insights on, on the sort of the training side as well. Yeah. And, and 
you know, one of the things we talked about just before was flexibility in working, right? And we had some time set aside for education. I think it was an afternoon a week where you could you could do pretty much whatever you wanted or we had some lectures which was great and there was a program put on for us but not all rotations had that so even within the country there's a huge variability there and if you look at the geographical distribution of the rotations you know we were we were centered on bristol right i was in cheltenham a lot we were well we both were up, up there in gloucester people were in swindon sometimes that drive on a friday afternoon to get to bristol for teaching took an hour and a half i remember i think you know is i remember you having the conversation i certainly had the conversation at the time with the with the training leads that you know, why not do this remotely? We've got Skype, we've got various pieces, people are missing out huge chunks of their training. So this comes down to, to you know, the technology. We had the capability at the time, but weren't really using it. I don't think people really knew how. Everyone assumed that if you were on a screen, you know, for a period of time, then you're probably going to be quite bored or people wouldn't be engaged, you know, whatever it was. And I think what we have got to now, and as I look at what's coming out of the coronavirus pieces that this is where we needed to be five or six years ago you know what 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 has changed it's just necessity we've had the tools um and and you know i think some of the other areas of education tying into the technology piece are certainly around i mean the, the work that verti's done i remember you know i can't say i had a big hand but we we work closely at the beginning of, of this and and you know that the, the opportunity to create a tool where people can be educated remotely not only in this country but abroad is is phenomenal you know um there's a one of my very good friends from university um wahid aryan he came over from afghanistan um in his late teens and and came to cambridge and went to trinity hall and uh, studied medicine went off to london now he set up a telemedicine charity that works in the middle east so you know, he's an a and e doctor he still practices but he has leveraged that technology to be able to help people in his home country in a way and give them the the support and education that they wouldn't have dreamed of you know not that long ago uh, and it's so simple through it through a smartphone you know so i i, I you kind of bring it back to to the experience that that I had that we had. I, I think I felt a lot of frustration at the time that there was these tools there that we couldn't use. And again, there was a lot of evidence around using, for example, simulation labs before knee arthroscopies. If you got the surgeon in and they did a dry run through, then they were more efficient and um, you know got better results at the end of the day than than if they went in cold straight to their first knee arthroscopy. You know, that was one example. The, the the muscle memory piece um, and touch surgery. You know, th- there we go. That that's a, a company that's used this this principle of deliberate practice in order to really make training and education accessible. Uh, you know, to the masses, anyone can go on there and and practice a carpal tunnel release or, or knee replacement or whatever it is. And you know, there's just really um, you know there, there was huge scope and 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 I felt that we couldn't we couldn't quite make it. And the argument always came down to to money so you know that was that was where the issue was um i think well, I, I, or, or the perception uh, the perception of cost and and not the returns and alex i'll, I'll turn it over to you you can talk about the returns from this kind of remote education farther than i can yeah i mean i, th- I think i mean j- just going back to one of the things you said about like the equity of access um is is really one of the key things because certainly when we were both training i think it's fair to say that healthcare professionals in general especially in orthopedics and and surgery and some of the uh, the very kind of competitive specialties. My observation was always that the people that are selected into those those high performing areas basically work their butts off on a day to day basis. And in healthcare, one of the ways they do that is gaining access themselves to high quality training environments. So you and I are both very very fortunate to work for Chris Kerwin, who um, is a silver scalpel winner in the UK, probably one of the best surgeons in the country, if not the world, uh, fantastic trauma surgeon. And his work ethic is just absolutely phenomenal. Um, but going back to what you said earlier, not everyone has the opportunity to go and train with him. And surgery itself mm-hmm. is an apprenticeship specialty. So um, the, you know, uh, you're getting in your kind of, you know, 10,000 hours or, or whatever the, the number of the week is to be, be adequately trained, um, is is not going to be equal for everybody because 
some people are going to be limited by geography or resources. Um, other people are going to have these fantastic training opportunities. And that leads to some people being better than others uh, through kind of serendipity and happenstance, really, which which isn't really fair. And then equally, even for the, you know, the, the, the people who have been exposed to the best type of training possible, it, it's not that repeatable. So every case is going to be different. Uh, different. Uh, you're going to miss out on things like tips and tricks from surgeons, non-technical skills, lots of these other things that actually make up surgery other than actually operating. Um, and I guess for me, it was always about how can you scale that and how can you quantify objectively to reduce that element of variability and, and in healthcare to therefore um, improve patient safety. Um, but, you know, in, in any kind of setting, in the business setting, having that type that access to standardized training is going to be hugely beneficial to anybody. Um, one of the things you mentioned earlier, Danny, was um, some of the, uh, the, the, the things that you were doing sort of at, at a national level, whether it was through the Leadership Academy or whether it was through um, the British Orthopedic Trainees Association. Um, it'd be really interesting just hearing your thoughts on how to actually implement things centrally for a large workforce like the NHS or orthopedics <laughs> and, and how that sort of went and what, what you learned from it. A nice, easy question there. Thank you, Alex. Um, yeah, centralization. Uh, somebody said to me recently that the NHS is um, 100 different doors with the same logo on uh, when it comes to procurement. I, I think that's very true. And, you know, there was the way that the budgets split up between the different training regions, you know, they, they have their own way of spending that budget. And I think that that was the ultimate challenge to um, to centralization, you know, it, unless there was an approach from the deaneries together, uh, you're never going to be able to get that kind of uniform training experience, you know, so, so this is all about the patient and maybe, you know, maybe we're asking the wrong question about centralization. Maybe it should be about patient needs in different areas, you know, as we move to value-based care, population-based care, you know, actually, maybe we need to reframe the question about how we go about implementing this kind of technology, because what we've seen is rapid adoption of different methods in the NHS now. And yes, from a pricing point, it might make sense to centralise, but, you know, how, how are we going to get there? I don't know. I'm not going to answer that question. I don't think we'll get to the bottom of that today. <laughs> but, you know, within the constraints that we have at the moment, actually, you know, should we be looking at more tailored solutions for different areas? Yeah, I mean, really, really great points. And, and I think just touching on, on what you mentioned there with the European Working Time Directive, obviously in Europe that effectively was to brought in to kind of protect uh, trainees and, and ensure that they were getting sufficient rest and, and they weren't sort of working beyond their, their means as they had been in the past. Or, you know, perhaps residents listening to this in the US might, um, you know, be able to sympathize with. But um, one of the things that I always took away from that was in a training capacity, moving from a something that is very much um, a quantity-based training, i.e. doing lots and lots of, of the same type of procedure or just being in work as much as possible, was then having to move over to, to a competency-based um, uh, training uh, pathway. Um, what were your experiences, I suppose, of sort of being in the, in the middle of that? And, and how do you think that sort of positively or negatively affected you training within an organisation? I want to say that I'm younger than you, so I didn't quite see that transition. But the truth of it would be, I just got my registrar job a year later, so I think I came straight in on the work-based. I'll, I'll give you like being like six months or eight months younger than me. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, so that that's a very good question because the the e-portfolio was the or, or the ISCP as as it was called in surgery was a, a big bone of contention, and there was this lack of understanding of the theory and, and why we were doing it and and what the value was. So we had this great, you know, remote portfolio that you could you could use anywhere. Um, you know, I say that sometimes you, there were no computers in, in theatre, but you know, you could you could fill this in anywhere with your trainer. You could fill it in separately and, and reflect on it later with them. You know, there was all manner of ways of using it, but it just felt at the time like another thing that was put on people and, and a change without any kind of clear clear guidance. And the evidence was all there. You just had to had to find it. Um, which is why I kind of felt quite passionate about it and passionate about how you could use it to drive things. And say so this goes back to my past experience in sport where actually I didn't do that and really did not have 
the right kind of learning curve as a result. I think it's very, it's very difficult rolling something out nationally for every single person within an organization in a training capacity because everyone learns slightly differently. And without having um, something that's personalized to people, it's very difficult to actually achieve adoption because people don't really necessarily see the benefits straight away. Um, and then actually showing people that it, that it is effective and, and helps them can be very, very challenging also. So that kind of buy-in for the, uh, the, the employee is absolutely critical. Um, fast forwarding slightly, so um, having then um, made the decision to, to leave the, the NHS and, and move into um, jobs in strategy and, and then now Russell Reynolds, what, tell me a little bit about kind of, you know, that decision and then also what, what you're sort of doing at the moment at Russell Reynolds. Mm-hmm. No, and I, I would say that this comes down again to, to purpose and the purpose that I feel. Um, you know, and what drives me. So having spent a bit of time exploring the management consultancy route, because that's what all doctors do, right? If they're leaving the NHS, they, they think that they can be a management consultant. There was something about it that just didn't capture my imagination. You know, I talked about Kaleidoscope a bit earlier, and it was a really unique organization. The way that it was it was run, the way that it worked, the clients that we worked with, and, and you know, how they accepted the slightly different views uh, that we brought along in the way that we ran events or, or that, you know, kind of the team, um, the team were working at the time. So, you know, that was a really unique experience and you developed a really strong relationship with people. But as I went and interviewed at management consultancies, I didn't feel that I was going to be the kind of person who could do a project handed over and then not stay and see it implemented. So, you know, as I was kind of exploring this, a friend introduced me to Russell Reynolds uh, I thought I was going for career advice, but as I had more conversations with people there, what I realized was that, you know, the thing that I'd been missing was impact at scale. And I, absolutely, there is huge value in in doing one hip replacement at a time at one knee replacement at a time. But for me, it just it just didn't feel enough. And as, as I was going through my career, I was in orthopedics, I saw it was becoming narrower and narrower and narrower. Um, and, and, you know, you would just end up doing cases of increasing complexity, but, you know, they would still be hip replacements. So, you know, for me, somehow I didn't feel great inspiration in that, but talking to the team at Russell Reynolds and, and hearing about their purpose about improving the way that world is led, you know, it really inspired me to think, well, actually, if I can help one biotech get a chief medical officer in who gets a drug across the line in oncology, that's going to affect far more patients than I ever could do in one operation at a time. So that for me was, was the kind of, the, the light bulb moment that made me realize that it was it was the right step and and obviously fortunate enough you know it's not it, it's a big step coming out of the NHS into this kind of industry into a much more corporate environment but I was very fortunate that Russell Reynolds took the risk on me and um, and, and I guess really you know, just just kind of jump on that point Danny do you think because uh, yeah, obviously I mean the NHS um, as with any healthcare provider the services that that you know we as surgeons providing were were amazing and, and obviously very, very rewarding for, for us. And um, we obviously, you know, took a lot of pride in, in everything we were doing. Do, do you think that that point you made on um, almost kind of like being valued or, or understanding the mission and goals of the company you're working for, do you, th- do you think that the NHS really kind of got that across to the employees in the same way that, say, a corporate in the private sector really pushes mission and vision and goals? It's a very good question. I think there's one thing pushing goals and vision and i've seen leaders in hospitals stand up and and talk about you know with great passion about about what they're doing about what the hospital's doing what they believe and i think it's about making people believe that that is what it is and some organizations in the corporate world do that very well and others others don't you know um i think the the culture at russell reynolds is is fantastic it's a it's a open place to work people are honest it's a feedback driven environment um you know and there there was consistency in everything that i heard about the organization from everyone i spoke with and i must have spoken to somewhere close to 15 people through the process coming in you know it's, it's a very rigorous process and you know it gave me plenty of time to think and ask the questions that i needed to and you know i could feel that that consistency in approach and mission between the people that I spoke with. And that was really key to me. Um, and, and you see it in pockets of the NHS, you know, there are certain services that people would, you know, run through fire 
to to work with the others and 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 get it through and, and unfortunately there are areas w- which are less motivated than that so you know again it comes down to that kind of consistency and uniformity and, and in any i mean look it's such a big organization so many people multi-site those sites are in various different states of repair or or you know um whatever so i, I it, it's a it's a bigger scale challenge to take um but you know people will still still rally behind that name and we've seen that it's been fantastic you know during this period the clap for carers and and all those kind of things and the way that other businesses have rallied behind nhs workers you know you you see it and it's just a shame that we haven't seen more of it i think yeah it's, it's it's a really great point and um, I, I guess for, from your perspective at, at Russell Reynolds at the moment and, and in your day-to-day job that you do where you're, you're um, recruiting very senior uh, C-suite type uh, executives into key roles in organisations, uh, can you just sort of expand on that a little bit about, about what that consists of and um, why those roles are so key for some of these big organisations that, that you work with? Uh, you know, it, it's leadership from the top and we, we work at executive and board level the majority of my work is around that executive level and what you see as you speak to leaders is the different the myriad of different styles approaches um capabilities and there's there's a unique opportunity in our job to help an organization find that piece of the jigsaw and you know we we have a, a team of business psychologists who have put together uh, a leadership, I'll, I'll call it an assessment. I don't think that's the right term for it, but but with with Hogan um, and we call it leadership span. And it, what we look at is the leadership capabilities, not on a binary, not in a binary way, but more in a, a, a spectrum. So, you know, people will flex their behaviors as leaders to be able to match you know, what needs to be done at that time. And that's what we've seen during this crisis is, is the really great leaders who have stepped up have shown the flexibility in their styles and, and the ability to um, transcend their, you know, in quotation marks, normal, normal behavior or tendency to behavior in order to help take people through the current crisis that we're seeing. So, you know, once you see, and, and, and we're in a unique position now, right, seeing these kind of organizations going through this current time because it's a crisis like never before you know you might see one in in your lifetime but we've seen the financial crisis now we've seen uh seen covid as 19 as well and you know the importance of leadership and the ability to to create the vision and keep people behind it and bring people with you on the journey you know that is i'd say what what it's a privilege to see in in you know our our candidates and, and working with our clients and from from your experience, having interviewed and worked with a number of very senior leaders in in quite key positions, what would be some of your the, the top kind of commonalities and traits that you see in these individuals that that you're putting in these positions? That's a very good question. I would say the top one is probably that ability to to adapt to the situation, you know it's things can turn on on a sixpence and and you know you need a leader who can who can adapt to that and adapt their team um you know i think communication is another big one the ability to um know what is the right level and the right time and also when to be quiet i think that's a very important one that's you know often underrated is is the time to know when to let others speak you know and be humble you know that that's that's a big one um and this is obviously aside from all, all technical skills and and um experiences but the emotional intelligence and i think from last year a new term that that i heard certainly and i think is is sort of one that came out of davos is the learning quotient the ability to keep learning and this is where we're seeing the most successful leaders at the moment the ones who can learn um and and show and implement the changes that they they have understood and i think as we look to the next generation it's going to be about sustainability you know that's where organizations are going to need leaders who can understand the long-term goals you know disruptive innovation long-term activation of um 
of the organization, stakeholder inclusion. So being able to really, from the bottom of the organization to the top, bring voices together um, and help forge that direction forward, but also the kind of the multi-level system thinking as well and being able to handle that, that high level of complexity. And you mentioned psychological tests. I mean, hiring for any organization is incredibly challenging, getting the best people impossible to drive your organization forwards. Are there any other things that you might recommend companies look for when they're reaching out to hire individuals, obviously other than working with Russell Rand's team? <laughs> well, it's a good question. It makes me think of actually of how we've been working in current times, really, you know, that question. It's We've, we've done a number of pretty big hires across the firm for everybody from you know banks in Asia to healthcare companies, biotechs at the C-suite level during COVID, and they've all been done virtually. And where we've really doubled down is around data gathering on people. You know, so how do you how do you go from a world where everybody was in the office and and you've got to see somebody face to face to make a decision to we're in a real crisis the organization needs a leader we don't know when this is going to end um and and you know we've been really working hard on using different data points so whether it's soft referencing on people or you know um psychometric assessment interviews with our business psychologists in more detail uh further hard referencing as well you know the these kind of things more more steps to to a process you know whatever it is to try and give people that confidence to be able to to make the decision you know and and yes sometimes it's still a sticking point face-to-face meeting but you know we're gradually opening up now and we've been working on various ways of you know having contracts in principle offers in principle you know that kind of thing with with candidates so that when the doors open they're they're good to go and and you know we can really hit the ground running so you know again as an organization we've had to be agile in that but you know what to look for next i think the two big areas for me are diversity inclusion um and and sustainability and that's where you know we're certainly working hard to find what are those aspects within those two areas where we can say yes this person has it um you know and we'll be able to to keep your 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 business growing and once you found these great people, I mean, how, you know, specifically Russell Reynolds, how do you onboard and train these people up very, very quickly to, to get them, you know, functional and, and high performing as quickly as possible? We will do the executive transition up. But I remember I had a conversation recently with someone who had done their dissertation into this, but it was about what's the executive transition down as well. And that's something I think we need to think about is, and, you know, this brings us back to the sports sports um comments from earlier where you see a lot of athletes who come out of very very successful careers suffering with depression you know various forms of mental illness and we don't look after people after they come out that top and i think it's very much the same for executives uh you know people will go from running a company one day to being retired the next and thinking about board roles but not really knowing where to start and actually it's that transition as well that i think we need to help people more um, as they come out of their careers because they still have a huge amount of value to add and what we've been driving in biotech particularly is is the role of the board as a uh, supporter for the ceo so they're not there to to set kpis for the for the ceo they're there as well to mentor that person and bring them through and help them fill the gaps that they have I think it's so important. And, and as you say, it reflects back to what we were talking about right at the top of the, the conversation, which was um, around keeping people you know, fit and healthy in these, these high performance roles and making sure that, you know, in a similar way to when you were training for fencing, that people are getting sufficient sleep, that they're healthy, that they're well, and, and that they're optimized as individuals uh, on, on a health level, I think incredibly important. Um, I mean, we could probably, you know, talk forever and ever about healthcare training and everything, and we'll probably get you back on uh, the podcast at uh, a later stage, sort of double down and and speak in a bit more depth about some of these, uh, the topics that we've covered. But um, just to kind of, you know, wrap things up, um, could you give, you know, one or a couple of examples of human performance that you've seen either in your current practice uh, or an external example that's really kind of influenced you throughout your career 
I'm, I'm actually going to give you one that hasn't influenced me throughout my career, but has really inspired me in recent days, which is, is the key workers in this current crisis. You know, you look at aged care where they went from, you know, the, the carers on the ground went from being, you know, afraid of their own health, of their their residents' health, to, to going through what is a really traumatic time in terms of the number of mortality, the, the rate of mortality we've seen in care homes. And to keep going through that and keep working through that and keep delivering high standards of care. Equally in the NHS, you know, the, the amount of time that people have had to down their normal tools to, to keep going in a vein where you don't know how long this is going to last with that uncertainty and that ambiguity, you know, I, I'm phenomenally impressed. I think that that is one of the biggest feats that we've seen in terms of human performance for a long time. And it's ongoing, you know, uh, that that absolutely blows my mind. And just the way that, that as well, a lot of companies have pulled together to look at creating vaccines. You know, we're seeing collaboration on a whole other level. Deals are getting signed in no time that would have taken months before. And you know, it, it's it just shows that when we pull together in a, in healthcare as a community, you know that it just shows what we can do. I think, but but yeah, absolutely, the key workers at the moment are just absolutely outstanding. Yes, fantastic example, and and quite neatly kind of wraps up everything we've been talking about. So, uh, listen, man, it's been it's been awesome speaking to you. Uh, if any listeners want to sort of get in touch with you, have you, have you got any socials or, or contacts through Russell Reynolds you you want to give out? Um, yeah, I was going to give you my Twitter. I can't remember it. I think I'm at Danny John Ryan, um, also on, on Instagram there. But otherwise, you can you can find me through the Russell Reynolds website. Awesome, awesome. We'll, we'll link them all into the podcast as well. It's been a been great speaking to you, and, and hope you stay safe. And, and we'll catch up very, very soon. You too. Thanks. 